Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12. We're in a series called Five on Five. We're looking at five sermons each on the first five books of the Bible. Today we're in Deuteronomy 12, and we're actually going to spend two weeks on this passage. Uh, this week our sermon is entitled A Lesson in Pleasing Worship. Next week our sermon will be entitled A Lesson in Covenantal Worship. And so as you can tell, the themes of this week and next week uh, follow the theme of Deuteronomy 12, and that's worship. And so at this time, if you are able, I invite you to stand. Why do we stand? We stand because it is our act of worship. Even the reading of God's word, even the receiving of God's word, we do unto the glory of God. Deuteronomy 12, reading verses 1 to 14. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of all of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. You shall rejoice before the Lord God, your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Would you join me in prayer once more? Father, we pray for your blessing upon the preaching now of your word. We pray that the preaching is an act of worship that pleases you. We pray that sitting under the preaching is an act of worship that pleases you. And in all these ways, as we hear attentively the voice of our God speaking to us through uh, your word, I pray, God, that we would have attuned hearts and attuned ears to receive, uh, but more than to receive, to respond in a way that would be obedient and pleasing. Bless this time now, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there's so much going on in our service, so I'm going to jump straight into our passage. Deuteronomy is a book about Israel poised on the threshold about to enter the promised land of Canaan. And as they've been wandering the desert for 40 years, uh, they've really had 
uh, no stability in their lives. They've always been wandering. They've been nomadic. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses instructs Israel as they're about to enter into the promised land that when they set up permanent residence, how they should live their lives. But one thing that he addresses in particular in our passage today is how Israel is called to worship. Not simply that Israel is called to worship, Israel knows that, but how they are to worship. And so as Moses is on, um, sees in the horizon, the promised land, he instructs Israel about this really important call. Now, we are New Testament believers, New Covenant believers. And so we read a passage like this and we think, well, this applied to Israel. A lot of it has been fulfilled by Jesus. Um, But if we actually have eyes to see and ears to hear, we actually begin to realize that there are principles here that there are themes here and topics here that actually matter to us. They mean something to us. And so if you take worship seriously, if if you understand that you've gathered here for a reason, then hear now what the Lord has to say. I'm going to take a bit of a deviation from the way I've been preaching the past few years, and I'm going to give you three points today. Point number one, worship is a matter of obedience. Point number two, Worship is an encounter with the holy. And point number three, worship is about giving, not receiving. So let's start with this first point. Worship is a matter of obedience. It's interesting, isn't it, that our passage begins in verse one like this. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Now that's verse one. We know in the rest of the chapter, God gives instructions for how they are to worship, but notice that he calls those instructions the statutes and rules. That means worship for Israel is a matter of obedience. The matter of obedience isn't isn't simply uh, that you should worship. The matter of obedience is how you should worship, the way, the manner that God has called us to worship him. Now, sometimes uh, I think we forget that. And it challenges us because we live in an individualistic, self-expressive culture uh, that reduces worship to our feelings, to our preferences, to our thoughts, our beliefs, and our desires for worship. The reality is we're far more consumed with our preferences for worship style than we care about what God is actually called us to in worship. There's an assumption that we make that God will receive anything if we just offer it from a sincere heart. Isn't that something you've grown up hearing, that God just cares about the heart involved in worship? It's almost like uh, we imagine God to be a guest that we're inviting over for dinner, and we think, well, because he's our guest, he should just be thankful and grateful for anything that we provide him. When in reality, is it true that the only thing that matters in our worship is that it's sincere. I want to challenge you with this question. Does God have to be pleased with your worship simply because you're offering it sincerely? Or put another way, does he only care about the state and status of your heart in worship and not really care about everything else? I've had conversations with people regarding worship And I've often heard something like this, where people liken God to an earthly parent receiving a gift or a present from their child. 
And in this analogy, uh, this dad is so loving that he just receives whatever his children bring to him because he knows they mean well. For example, the dad loves tulips, but his kids love dandelions. And so when it's his birthday, they go out and they pick dandelions and they present that before him. And the question is something like this. Do you really think that dad would scold and reject his children because they didn't bring him tulips because they brought him dandelions instead? Is God so ungracious and so unkind that he would actually be displeased at what his kids are offering to him? And the whole point of that analogy suggests God looks at our hearts. He looks at our sincerity And then he receives and delights in whatever it is you offer to him. But is that really true? I would use that same analogy just a little differently. And I would say the same thing. Okay, that's true. But what if you fast forward 30 years, the children are now adults. They're 35 years old. If they have never thought about or asked or tried to discern or noticed that their dad doesn't like dandelions, but he really likes tulips. If they've never thought to consider what actually pleases him and then gone out of their way to give what he wants, not what they want to give, do they really love him at all? Wouldn't we conclude that an adult child who's never once thought, what is dad actually like? and continues to give only what he wants to give, we'd consider and conclude that child was a bit self-centered, immature. Because as you grow, as you come to love God more, his heart, what pleases him, that begins to rule your desires. Now, dear friends, it's true. God looks at your heart. He desires sincerity in your worship. It's important that your worship is genuine, but that doesn't mean it's the only thing God cares about. He gives statutes and rules about worship because he actually cares about how you worship and what you offer. And understanding that and surrendering to it, submitting to it is actually a mark of a growing and maturing believer that you don't worship God simply how you prefer to worship God, but you worship him in a way that he desires. And in a way that pleases him, which leads to uh, the next point. Uh, Worship is an encounter with the holy. There's nothing casual about worship. I know I'm standing up here with a Britney Spears microphone, uh, and you are in your chairs and listening, but preaching the word of God is not anything like a TED Talk where I'm communicating my interests and trying to impart new insights to you. When we sing as the gathered people, it's not group karaoke. The people playing up here are not musical entertainment. Worship and praise is not something you merely hear. It's something you join in. You see, when we gather for worship, you are encountering, you are meeting the holy God. Something transcendental is happening here. Now, I say this because in our passage, the first thing God calls Israel to do as they enter the new land is to get rid of all of the false gods and all of the false worship. Right, verse 2 comes across a bit strongly, but we read, You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. Point here, I want you to get rid of every trace of these foreign gods in the land. Why? Well, it elaborates a little more in verse 3. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars, 
and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. And by the way, the, the ashram were these little figures, little figurines of, of these goddesses or gods that were set on a pole and they were used as cultic objects of worship. And what God is calling Israel to do is remove them all. Get rid of every trace and semblance of these unholy things. And it says there at the very end, to destroy their name out of that, out of that place. That doesn't simply mean uh, destroy their name as in get rid of their memory, get rid of any memory of them. In the ancient culture, the name of a deity represented the presence of the deity. And so where the name was, the presence was. And what God is saying is, get rid of the name of the false gods means get rid of their presence. Why get rid of their name? Because God is saying, I'm the new owner of this home. Kick the old tenants out so I can move in. He wants his name there. So he says in verse five, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. God says, I want to come and dwell among the people, but in order for my holy presence to be here, their unholy presence needs to be out. Now, what God says here is that he's going to choose a central place, a central location. Now, Israel, of course, they're still wandering. They're not yet in the promised land, but what we're going to find out if you keep reading the Bible is that that central land uh, becomes a city, the city of Jerusalem. And that central place becomes the temple that King Solomon goes to build. And that in the temple, in the city of Jerusalem, God's holy presence will come. He will inhabit and dwell in that temple. Now, if you know your Bible, you know, fast forward a millennium later, Jesus shows up and he starts talking about how he's the temple. And he says that this temple, the physical temple that Israel built, is no longer where the presence of God is. He is the temple, and where he is, is the presence of God. But then Jesus dies, resurrects, ascends into heaven, and then he sends his Holy Spirit. And Apostle Paul goes on to say that when he sends his Holy Spirit and his Spirit dwells in his people, there's that famous line where he says, you are God's holy temple. You need to understand that in its context. That's been ripped out of context so much. And we've heard it used and abused in so many ways. Don't get a tattoo. Why? Your body's a temple. Don't eat trans fat. Why? Your body's a temple. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is making the claim that the gathered people of God who have his spirit in him, they become the habitation of God. They become the temple. They become where his presence is. Now, what does all of this truth and theology have to do with Deuteronomy 12? And that's this. When you gather together, when we gather as God's people to worship, his holy presence inhabits our midst. His name is here. It's not on an altar or a holy hill. It's not in a specific city or a stone temple. God's name, his presence, his habitation is here among us now the gathering of the saints, his holiness presence. So when we come to worship, we are encountering the holy God, which means this, worship is not about a place where you drive. Worship um, is about a person you meet. I think some people get this confused. You think that because you came to, work, because you came to church, you worship. You ever have people say that? Oh yeah, I worship because I went to church. But, you know, you can say that you worked out because you went to the gym or that you learned because you went to school. But if you know, you're like me, you can go to both and do neither. 
You can go to the gym, but if you don't lift weights, then have you worked out? You can go to school, but if you didn't pay attention, have you learned? You can come to church, but if you've not encountered the holy God, have you worshiped? See, when we gather, when the holy presence of God is here, his name is here among us, that actually begins to change something about your attitude and your approach to what worship is. Because it can't be casual. It can't be informal. Coming to the church can't be the same thing as packing your bags and heading to the mall or showing up five minutes late to the movies because it's okay, there are trailers. Coming to worship is coming to the mountain. But the habitation of God is here. Now, there's some confusion sometimes because when we talk about the gospel, we talk about the freedom that the gospel brings. But the freedom of the gospel doesn't mean that you get to worship God however you want to, in whatever manner pleases you. In fact, to think that way actually misses the beauty of the gospel. Because you know what the gospel provides freedom from? What the gospel removes? The gospel removes the rigidity of worship, but the gospel does not move reverence from worship. The gospel moves rigidity of worship, but not reverence from worship. What I mean by that is the rigidity that sometimes we experience is this uh, restrictiveness of a vision of worship that's been uh, informed by often human tradition, preferences, cultural expectation, and the gospel frees us from those things. And so what do I mean? Uh, You don't have to dress a certain way for that to be pleasing worship only. You don't have to check your emotions in at the door in order to offer pleasing worship. You don't have to only sing hymns and chant psalms in order to have pleasing worship. You don't have to, trust me, Presbyterians, keep your arms at your side and be as stiff as a board in order for that to be pleasing worship. The gospel frees you from the rigidity of worship, but the gospel does not free you from the reverence of worship. The reverence of worship comes from understanding that we are encountering the holy. And what the gospel does is this. Before, because of our sin, in the presence of a holy God who's called a consuming fire, right, we would be condemned, justly deserving to be consumed by his wrath and judgment. But the gospel frees us from that by covering us, saying Jesus Christ died so we are no longer under his judgment. So the gospel doesn't remove God's holiness. The gospel doesn't remove God as a consuming fire. The gospel removes our sin because God was never the problem. We were. And therefore, embracing the gospel means when we come to worship, God is not no longer holy. He is holy. But you know what the beauty is? That holiness is no longer a thing to fear or a thing to dread. That holiness now becomes more beautiful than ever. We come and we worship God and we celebrate his grace, the grace by which we were saved in Christ. But the gospel actually frees us also to come and praise God for his holiness as our heart is drawn to awestruck wonder. You know, gospel-fueled worship is not simply running into the embracing arms of a loving, gracious father. Gospel-fueled worship is also gazing with trembling knees at the Holy One is perfect and blameless in all his ways. You see, friends, when you come to worship, yes, we come with a rejoicing heart, but do you also come with a reverent heart? You know, in the church, in our service, we try to capture some of those transcendental aspects. 
We ask you to stand in reverence for the Lord. We begin with silent preparation so that there's some fear and trembling. We confess because we recognize his holiness. And so as a church, we're trying our best, but the reality is for the worship to actually be understood and given in response to this encounter with the holy God, it requires something from your end. And you walk through the doors. Is there a bit of seriousness with, when you come? Is there reverence in your heart? Is there preparation that you've made? That relates to this third point, then, which is this. Worship is about giving, not receiving. Here's a simple question to ask you, but is worship about you or is it about God? I think many of us would answer, well, it's about God. But what betrays us is uh, the list of expectations we have about worship. Because when you actually begin to examine what we want from worship, it shows us that we actually care a little bit more about us than we do about God. But when Israel was called to worship, I mean, look at what they were called to do. Verses 5 and 6. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And so Israel was called to bring all these things. And it's repeated again in verse 11, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your contributions, and the finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And what you see is that worship according to the Old Testament looks nothing like the worship that Christians today have come to expect. Because worship here is an activity of response and bringing offering before the Lord. You know, Israel dare not come empty-handed. They were called to bring two things. The first are burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, there's good news here. Because for those who are in Christ, the gospel frees Christians from the obligations to have to bring burnt <laughs> offerings and sacrifices. Nobody came in here and parked your lamb or your ram at the door. We don't have to bring that because God has provided that. By giving us his one and only son, he provided the burnt offering, the once-for-all sacrifice. And so you don't have to come trying to stuff your pockets full of your merits of righteousness and your resume of success. You don't have to go outside and spray yourself with good behavior so that you might be a pleasing aroma to God. No, God in Christ has forgiven you, washed you clean. You don't need to come with your burnt offerings. You in Christ have been washed, accepted, approved, received. And I think a lot of Christians, therefore, think, so we come and we come empty-handed. No, you don't come empty-handed. Because although God has given you his son, who's washed you clean, we see that there's a second thing Israel brings. They bring not just burnt offerings and sacrifices, they bring their tithes, their contributions, their free will offerings, their vow offerings. What are these things? They're bringing their response of gratitude. They're bringing their response of joy. They're bringing their response of devotion. As a Christian, when you worship, you are bringing something to the Lord. Your worship isn't your righteousness. You're not saying, Lord, look at, uh, look at, I'm worshiping. Oh, look, my hands are raised. Oh, I have two hands raised. This is, I am pleasing to you. No, that's not what you're bringing. 
but what you bring in response to gratitude and joy and devotion to God is an expression of your heart that you realize that you have received already from God the greatest blessing to receive. And this goes against the grain of how Christians think because our culture has a deep preoccupation with evaluating what we got out of service, what we got out of the sermon, what we got out of the praise. I mean, some of you have wound up at Cornerstone through, you know, God-ordained means, I, I, I believe, but uh, some of you have uh, wandered, and, uh, you know, we call these periods uh, church hopping or, or church shopping. Uh, and so, in some sense, we, we all have criteria of what we think, you know, a good worship is. And usually, I mean, quite frankly, the worship service is reduced, our criteria is reduced to two things, the preaching and the praise, right? You like the praise when you receive and experience. Emotions are stirred. You really like the songs that we sang, the, you know, the, the drummer was on point, um, the, the lyrics were great. You like the preaching when you've, you're always receiving new insight. I'm always learning new things. I'm always really convicted, and I feel a certain way. Oh, the preacher really gave me clarity. Right? That's the things we like. And then we say this phrase, uh, it's just okay. It was okay. How was church? No, the praise was okay. Well, what do you mean it was okay? It means you didn't like the songs. You didn't know the songs. The band didn't perform well. The key was too high. The ambience was not right. The lights were just too darn bright. It was okay. Well, about the preaching, well, the preaching was okay. What, do you, what does that mean? I didn't learn anything new. It was just a bunch of reminders. We love saying that. I was just reminded of things. I wasn't engaged. I wasn't practical enough. The points didn't strike me. Oh, it didn't hit home. Well, friends, when the gospel is front and center in a Sunday service, when it's being presented to you through the whole order of service that Jesus Christ is God's gift and greatest blessing that you have received freely. It has a way of reminding you through the service, I'm not here to get anything more, I'm here to give. I mean, God has given us his one and only son. How dare I stand here and say, well, can you give me a little more? But we come and we gather and we say, God, you've given us Jesus the greatest blessing. And we're here to say thank you. And so throughout the service, we have a posture of giving, of blessing, of worshiping, of glorifying, of thanking. Because we have received Christ. If this is true, I'd like to suggest just two things. And we'll end with these. The first is this. Lean in, don't lean back. What do I mean by that? Leaning in has a posture of eagerness and anticipation attached to it. Leaning in means you're, you're ready to be involved and active and engaged. You're saying, God, I'm here to bless you. I'm here to give you worship. Adopt that posture of leaning in. Lord, be pleased. Receive what I'm giving. Leaning back is a posture of receiving, passivity, consumerism. When we lean back, we're spectating what's happening. When we lean in, we're participating. When we lean back, we're watching. When we lean in, we're worshiping. When we lean back, we're letting the chorus of those singing reach our ears. When we lean in, our voices are joining the chorus that reach heaven. Lean into your worship, not back. The second thing is this, 
get your rest. Get your rest. You cannot come ready to give when you are depleted and tired. We are a union of body and spirit. Your spirit may be willing, but if your flesh is weak, you come into worship and you are fighting an uphill battle. You know this. That's why you're at the second service, not the first. (laughs) See, if worship is about what you receive, then if you come tired, yeah, you may not get everything, but it's okay. If you come well-rested, you get everything, it's great. You have a choice. But if worship is not about receiving, but about giving, then you should position yourself to be in the prime position to give God your worship. Which means really then that preparation for Sunday worship doesn't begin Sunday morning when you wake up. It begins Saturday night. It's no secret that on long weekends like this one, um, people are more willing to hang out on Sunday nights because there's no work the next day. But most other weeks, Sunday evening, uh, hangouts are minimal or you end them early. Why? Because everyone says, well, we have work tomorrow. You don't want to begin the week energyless and tired and grumpy. And so you guard and protect Sunday nights. I'm going to head home early. Oh, sorry, maybe we can do that next week. But we don't do the same for Saturday nights. We are far more likely to stay out late. We're far more likely to stay up late. But on Saturday, the following day is far more important than on Sunday's following day. Because yes, Monday might be a work day, but Sunday is the Lord's day. The day of rest actually requires your rest. How might you start considering to prepare yourself, not just in spirit, but in body more, to come ready to give your all, to be engaged and focused? Get rest, dear saints, and come ready to worship God. As we close here, offering pleasing worship to God, it is about the sincerity of your heart, but it's about so much more. Worship that pleases the Lord is about a posture you take and practices you engage in. So you come ready to encounter the holy God and you come ready to give him all of your worship. Let's pray.